If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open them to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Genesis 6, 1 through 8. And the title of this sermon is Total Depravity and Amazing Grace. If you looked ahead and you know what's in this text already, buckle up. I want to start this morning by reminding us of a fun word we learned a while back. Perspicuity. Perspicuity. Perspicuity is the doctrine that the Bible is clear. But in stating that, let me remind us what we mean by that and what we don't mean by that. We don't mean that every text in Scripture is equally clear. Remember, Peter says that some of Paul's teachings are, quote, hard to understand. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16, Peter writes, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. I'll remind us that the Westminster Confession of Faith says this regarding perspicuity. It says, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet... Those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other, that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. In other words, the things that we need to know and believe for salvation are crystal clear in Scripture. Things like, Jesus is fully God. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is fully God. How about Colossians 2, 9? For in him, meaning Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Clear. Jesus is fully man. John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is fully man. How about Hebrews 2, 17? Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Clear. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and rose from the grave three days later to defeat sin for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here it is. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Clear. We can keep going. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other. What's my point? Well, I have two points, actually. First, today's text is a hard one. There are faithful, godly, evangelical Bible scholars who completely disagree about some of the details in today's text. Meaning that it's like one of those teachings from Paul that might be hard to understand. Second, and most importantly, Praise God that one's interpretation of this text isn't necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation. I'm going to give you the two major views at the top of this text. I lean one particular way today. I've studied and studied and studied and prayed and prayed and studied. You may disagree with me and hold to the other view. That's okay. We can still remain in fellowship and friendship. We'll hug in heaven and ask Jesus about this text together one day. One of us will be right. (laughs) And at the end of the day, even if we diverge on what verses 1 through 4 are saying, the main point of this text is the same. The two roads come back together pretty quickly in the text and agree. So with all of that in mind, Let's dive into God's word together. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man, whom I have created, from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Our three points for the structure of this text are these. Point one, sin in verses one through four. Point two, judgment in verses five through seven. And then point three, hope in verse eight. This is the Genesis cycle that we've seen already and will continue to see. Sin, judgment, hope. Sin, judgment, hope. So point one, sin. Look with me starting in verse one. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, 
the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. In verse 4, we read, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. The key question in these verses is this. Who are the sons of God? Who are the sons of God? One of the major views is that the sons of God are angels, and that these angels came to earth and had sex with human women, thus producing children. Again, godly Bible interpreters, pastors, and just Christians in general hold to this position. Why? First, there are clear places in Scripture where sons of God refer to angels in the Old Testament. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, meaning angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Second, those who hold to this particular view point to the New Testament, specifically to 2 Peter and Jude, to support this position. Jude 6 and 7 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jude 6 and 7. Similarly, 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10 2 Peter 2, 4-10 For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Okay one view. Now, for another view, the one that I hold and humbly present to you today. I'm not the only one who holds to this view, by the way. If I were, I would need to rethink things. Uh, I assure you I'm in good theological company here, along with John Calvin, Gerhardus Voss, Ligon Duncan, R.C. Sproul, and many, many, many others. Who are the sons of God? Back to our text. I believe that the sons of God are the godly line of Seth, who are the daughters of men. I believe that they're of the line of Cain. Why do I believe this? Remember the structure of Genesis. Genesis 3.15. We've read this almost every week as part of our sermons. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's two seeds, or offspring, and they're violently opposed to one another, at war for the salvation of humanity. While we know that the ultimate seed of Eve is Christ, and that he crushed Satan's head by dying on the cross and rising from the grave, while we know that, there's a long line of seeds that leads to him. There's also a long line of seeds representing the serpent. We've seen this already in the structure of Genesis in every text we've studied so far. We saw Adam and Eve sin in the garden. We saw God come in judgment. But there was the hope of this promise. There was a righteous seed, Abel, and a seed of the serpent, Cain. We traced the line of the serpent in chapter 4, culminating in Lamech, the brutal polygamous killer. Then, in chapter 5, we traced the righteous line, the line of Seth, culminating in Enoch, who walked with God. Two lines of seeds. Those are the train tracks that that the book of Genesis runs on from start to finish, all the way through, two lines of seeds. Further, remember the word toledot from last Sunday. Toledot, it's the Hebrew word that translates the generations of. Remember that this word is a mile marker throughout the book of Genesis. Ten different times to tell us where one section begins or ends and another section begins. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of, so Toledoch, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And it traces the line of Seth all the way to Noah. Now, I'll just ask you guys, look in your text. Where's the next Toledoch? Chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. What does that mean? It means that verses 1 through 8, the verses in question here in our text, are part of the book of the generations of Adam, which started in 5.1. In other words, it would be pretty strange for this book to jump from talking about the line of Seth to talking about angels. Now, let me also show you that this phrase, sons of God, can simply refer to God's people, to God's chosen people. Look at Romans 8, verses 14 through 16. Romans 8, 14 through 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as what? Sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we, believers, are children of God. Believers are called sons of God or children of God. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. How about in the Sermon on the Mount? 
Matthew 5, verse 9. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Finally, let's take a look at the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, which is tracing through Seth's line, by the way. Luke 3, 37 through 38. The son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's the language that Luke 3 is using to describe this godly line of Seth, the son of God. Do you see that? What is this Toledot in chapter 5, verse 1, called? This is the book of the generations of Adam. What is Adam called here in the genealogy of Luke? The son of God. Now, what about those, those two texts in the New Testament that I read earlier? What do we do with those? Well, it's my contention that people are reading the angel interpretation back into those texts when it's not explicitly there. Let's look at them again. Jude 6 and 7. Jude 6 and 7. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Is it possible just asking a hypothetical question. Is it possible that verses 6 and 7 here in Jude are talking about two separate things that make a singular point? I think it is. What if verse 6 is referring to Lucifer and the fallen angels who rebelled against God and his authority? Then verse 7 is referring to Sodom and Gomorrah. Rebelling against God, likewise via sexual immorality. Both, Lucifer and the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah, both were judged for their rebellion against God. And that's the point Jude's making. I see the same thing in 2 Peter 2, 4-7. through It says this, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, notice that this text doesn't tell us how the angels sinned. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. You see those ifs? He seems to be bringing three different stories to the witness stand to make one solitary point. Witness number one, God casting out Lucifer and the angels for their rebellion. Witness two, the ancient world in Noah's time, which we're about to read about next week. Those who were wicked in, in Noah's time. Witness three, Sodom and Gomorrah. 
a bastion of ungodliness. God condemned and judged them all. Lot was rescued. Noah was rescued. Do you see how it's possible to interpret these New Testament passages differently and not automatically see angels having sex with women in Genesis 6? Further, understand that intermarriage or God's people marrying outside of God's people was a huge issue going forward in Scripture. Genesis chapter 26, Esau marries a Canaanite woman, and it doesn't go well. How about Genesis 34, when Dina of the godly line is taken by Shechem of the ungodly line? It's a major issue for God's people each and every time it happens. Finally, I'd like to point out the exact language of verse 2 in our text. Look at verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Notice that this isn't just fornication. These sons of God took the daughters of man as what? Their wives. They married them. Why is that important? Well, in Matthew 22, verse 30, we're told by Jesus that angels neither are married nor given in marriage. Do you see? Even more, notice the verbs in verse 2 and the description. Verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were what? Attractive. It's actually the word tov or good. And they took. Where have we seen this before? Garden, right? Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was what? Good. Same word for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Do you see that? The line of Seth did exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. There was something that God forbid. Marrying ungodly wives. They saw what seemed good to them, and they took. Instead of following God's will, they're taking, the text says, any they chose. They're marrying outside of the covenant family. The beauty of these women overrode their spiritual judgment. In today's world, it'd be like a Christian marrying a non-believer. This isn't God's will for you. And it will lead to major problems. Even the godly line of Seth, Moses wants us to see, even that godly line is headed into a death spiral. I believe that this is what Moses wants us to see. Sin is overtaking everything and everyone. And regardless of which interpretation you take, that's the end point. Sin is running rampant on the earth. Now, 
Let's look quickly at a couple more details before we move on in the text. What about the Nephilim? Who are they? And what's their connection to the previous verses? Look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. I believe that what Moses is doing here is giving a time stamp to, to the Israelites who would have been reading Genesis and wondering, when in the world did all this happen? Moses is telling them, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. It'd be like us saying, it was in the days of the 49ers Super Bowl dynasty. The days of Joe Montana and Steve Young and Jerry Rice. You'd know what era I was talking about. Now, Nephilim is commonly translated giants. And I don't think that's a bad translation. You should also know that the root word, nephal, that makes up Nephilim, it means to fall. To fall. Here's what I think Moses is saying. These were the days of powerful, impressive men who did amazing things. Yet, they were completely degenerate. In other words, they were giants. They were heroes on the outside, but morally depraved on the inside. And what's God's response to all of this? What does all of this sin lead to in our text? Point two, judgment. Look at verse five. This time it's the Lord saying, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I think this is the point that all of these verses thus far are driving at. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. Sin is at all-time levels. If it were on a chart, it's gone up and to the right with no end in sight. Verse 5 is a damning rebuke of humanity. And not just outward actions. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice here that we're focused in on man, not angels, and their wickedness. Man, who God's going to hold responsible in this text. Not angels, man. Let's keep reading verses 6 and 7. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Oof. That's rough. A couple of important truths here. Number one, when we see words like regretted, grieved, and sorry, it can be confusing when it comes to God's character. What we're dealing with 
is what's known as an anthropomorphism, or more specifically, an anthropopathism. Anthropopathism. This word simply means ascribing human emotion to God. Ascribing human emotion to God. I want to be clear. God isn't regretful or grieved or sorry because he was caught off guard or that he changed his mind or made a mistake here. That's not what Moses is saying. Reading 1 Samuel 15 might give us some help here. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel, the prophet, is commanded to bring judgment against King Saul. Then look with me in verse 35 at the end of this chapter. 1 Samuel 15, verse 35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, if we only had that verse, and we only had Genesis 6, we might be tempted to think that God makes mistakes or changes his mind. But look back, back at verse 29 in 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. And also the glory of Israel. He's talking about God here. The glory of Israel, meaning God. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Here's the point. God doesn't have regret like we have regret. Yet, he's not indifferent to sin. And I think that's the point here in Genesis 6. God isn't indifferent to sin. He's not an unfeeling robot. He's deeply, deeply grieved by sin. The biblical authors are, are using human language to communicate the truth and to raise the bar on our understanding of God and our understanding of our own sin. God's not apathetic. He's not indifferent. He's grieved by sin. And God's response to sin is this. I will blot out man. I will blot out man. Let that sit. What's your initial reaction to that? so easy for us to have the assumption that God's being a bit heavy-handed here, over the top, unfair in some way. But in that, we're not thinking biblically. If you haven't seen the R.C. Sproul What's Wrong With You People clip on YouTube, I highly encourage you to go watch it this afternoon. Type in What's Wrong With You People R.C. Sproul. The gist of the video is this. Sproul and a group of other pastors are sitting on stage for this panel discussion, and twice they get a form of this question. The question comes in to them. If God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? And his very spirited answer... Sproul reminds the crowd that we're talking about a creature from the dirt here. 
who defied the everlasting holy God. Then God gave, gave them grace, cursed Satan with a promise that a seed of Eve would crush his head. Then he clothed man by killing an animal to cover their nakedness and shame. And the punishment is too severe? Are you kidding me? He then says, what's wrong with you people? The whole point of the video. He goes on to, to correctly locate that the issue with that question is that we don't know who God is. And we don't know who we are. He's not wrong. When we really understand the holiness of God, when we really understand who he is, then when we understand our own sin and the sin of the world around us, we'll quickly understand that we all deserve to be blotted out. God's judgment in deciding to blot out man is 100% just and deserved. And yet, even in this text, even here, there's a hint of God's patience and long-suffering. Look back at verse 3. Verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. While some understand this to be God limiting the amount of years that a human can live, we see that Abraham and others surpassed that. Genesis 25, verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. So I understand God to be saying here that he'll pour out his judgment 120 years from this moment in the text. In other words, the flood, which we'll get to soon, will come to blot out mankind, but in 120 years. Even in this pronouncement of just judgment, God gives them time to repent and to turn to him. And that brings us to verse 8, what I consider to be the main point of this entire text. Point three, hope. Hope. We've seen sin. We've seen God's just pronouncement of coming judgment. Then look at verse 8. This is glorious. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Remember what Noah's dad said about him when he was born? Remember what he believed about him? Genesis 5, 28 through 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's dad believed that his son Noah would somehow bring rest and relief from the curse. In chapter 6, we've seen the result of the curse just running wild and spreading. And here he is, Noah. And what does the text say? Noah found what? Favor. It's the Hebrew word hen. And do you know what that word means? Grace. Grace. 
amazing grace. I don't care what you believe about verses 1 through 4 in this text. We can all agree on this. This part of the text is crystal clear. Out of all the people on the face of the planet, God chose to give this guy, Noah, grace. We'll find out later in the text that Noah is called a righteous man. And that he, like Enoch, walked with God. But, very important but, Noah wasn't sinless. The truth is, he deserved to be blotted out just like every other human being. Yet, God gives him favor. Hen. Grace. This is the most shocking part of this story. It's not shocking that God decides to blot out humanity. It's shocking that he shows grace to anyone. Do we understand that? So many people want to say, how can God be loving and send people to hell? That's the wrong question. The question is, why is anyone safe from hell? We all deserve it. We've all sinned against the holy creator of the universe. In what we've done, in what we've failed to do, what we've thought, in the depths of our hearts, we are sinners, both from birth and then in action. And this text drops this absolute bomb on us. God shows this guy grace. Friends, the same truth that we see here of Noah is no less true for us. God's grace is our only hope. We, we no less deserve to be blotted out because of our sin. Yet, for those who are in Christ, we're shown absurd, unearned, demerited grace. Look what Isaiah says. Isaiah 43, verse 25. This is God speaking here. He says, I, I am he who does what? Blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Instead of us being blotted out, God says he'll blot out our sins. How's that even possible? It's possible because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came to this earth and became flesh. He became fully human in every way that you and I are, yet without sin. He's the only human who's lived his entire life without sin. He was righteous and perfect in every way. Then, he went to the cross, punished as a criminal in our place. He died on the cross, paying the just penalty that we deserve and owe. But he didn't remain there. He was buried. And three days later, he overcame sin, death, and Satan by rising from the dead, crushing the head of the serpent. When you repent and believe, 
you will be saved. Your, your sins are placed on Jesus who paid for them in full. His perfection is placed on you. And you're declared righteous. All of that is grace. It's unmerited. It's demerited favor. Friends, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what we live for. It's why we gather as a church week in and week out. It's why we sing and it's why we can't stop praising God. Our world is totally depraved. Our own hearts are totally depraved. But as Christians, we're recipients of God's amazing grace. If you're not a Christian, I'm pleading with you this morning. Turn from sin and trust in Christ. Like in this text, God's patience won't last forever. There will be a day when payment for sin must happen. Either Jesus will pay or you will. There's no in between. But the moment you repent and believe in Christ, you too, like Noah, will be shown grace. So will you trust in him in this moment? And if you're a Christian, take this moment to be humbled, to realize that all of us, pastor included, deserve to be blotted out. And in the same breath, take this moment to be insanely, insanely grateful. God's grace to us in Christ is mind-blowing. Stand in awe of that. Let's pray.